This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we've got Gavin Ortland with us. I was trying to say that too quickly. We've got Gavin Ortland with us, and we're going to be discussing why we're still protesting Rome. It's going to be a good episode. Stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, we've got an exciting program for you today. You're going to have to give us a little bit of grace as we are just now setting up all of our gear from this trip in Anaheim. We just got back from uh, Anaheim discussing the Vineyard Revival, uh, the re- Vineyard Movement with Carol Wimber, uh, uh, with, um, oh my goodness, uh, uh, Kevin Springer and many others. We've got fantastic interviews that we're looking forward to releasing for you. Uh, but before we do that, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is an entirely crowdfunded program, so if you want to support the channel, there are links in the description to do so. Uh, but also, I want to remind you that the Word and Spirit School of Ministry, uh, a course that we have developed that's endorsed by guys like Craig Keener and Sam Storms and Jack Deere and Mike Bickle, uh, is all about how to learn the gifts of the Spirit, what the Bible says about them, and uh, how we practice them as individuals. So we have times where you're watching videos, reading books, uh, doing live Q&A with your instructors, and breakout sessions with small group leaders. It's a fantastic program. If that's something you're interested in, there are links below where you can find out more information. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my friends. We've got Gavin with us once again on the program. I think this is three or four, Gavin. Uh, and then you guys know Michael Roundtree. So excited to have everyone on. Before I jump into it, Michael, do you want to give like a, a highlight from the vineyard and, and something fantastical that you really enjoyed from that experience? Oh, fantastical. Man, I, it would just have to be, I, I think, meeting Carol Wimber. Uh, it just felt, uh, I, I don't know, John Wimber feels like the spiritual grandfather that I never got to meet because uh, having been discipled by Jack Deere, who was discipled by Wimber, it it was just uh, really special. But uh, on top of that, just rich fellowship and uh, and just, uh, I think, powerful meetings and, and videos. I'm excited to release this. We called it a docu-series. That might be a little big of a word. We have five or six interviews, I think, but it's going to really tell the story of the Anaheim Vineyard if you don't know it. Uh, it's really powerful for recent church history. The Vineyard Church changed the world in uh, in a number of ways. But uh, anyway, so that, that was really great. And uh, I got to bring my family along and uh, that was awesome. So uh, anyway, so great time. And uh, yeah, and I'm I'm excited about this show, uh, Josh, because well, first of all, I told Gavin before this show, uh, I'm I'm not a flattery guy, and so I'm saying this in all sincerity. Gavin's channel is my very favorite. I listen to it all the time. I encourage you guys go to Truth Unites. It's so rich, uh, very uh, biblically, theologically touching on uh, just so many important issues. And uh, so Gavin, import, I appreciate the thought that you've put into all of that and, and what you're putting out. So, um, but Gavin, um, 
we want to talk about Protestantism and Catholicism, something you've talked a lot about on your channel. Before we even jump into that, uh, if there's anything else, maybe you want to tell us about your channel or any, maybe, I don't know if you're writing a book or anything like that, just uh, let us know how, how we can connect with you before we jump into the topic. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys again. Thanks for having me back. I love your channel as well and the great work that you guys do. Um, yeah, well, I guess I could just say on the Protestant stuff, that's not something I planned to get into. Uh, people have sometimes asked about, I am writing a book on this, and it's called What It Means to be Protestant. That's an updated mm -hmm. title. Uh, what It Means to be Protestant, The Case for an Always Reforming Church, and that'll come out in August of 2024, one year from recording this video, uh, this interview. Um, yeah, and I, that, you know, that's been actually something over the last four years I've just gotten pulled into, especially through being on YouTube. I started my YouTube channel three years ago, and what I've observed is there's a lot of people who just don't know a lot about church history. They grew up in an evangelical context, and there's so many uh, of those who will argue for Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy that just sometimes they don't really get many counter arguments. It's kind of amazing how, how many people don't really stand up for Protestantism. And I try to take the, the approach of appreciate where we agree with these other, other traditions, many terrific people in them, but also it's not wrong to defend Protestantism. So that's I've just gotten pulled into that by surprise. Uh, so people could check out my channel, but I get to do that stuff, but I try to do other things as well. And I'm going to be focusing a little more on general apologetics this fall. And I'm going to do a lot of research on the hiddenness of God. That'll be my special focus for Truth Unites this fall. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, as we're jumping into this topic, obviously it's real heated between Protestants and, and Catholics, or at least it can be. I think you do a great job at, at trying to stay out of the, the heated side of the argument. And, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe this, this first question will just kind of help us stay uh, keep the right tone here. Uh, here's the question. What mm -hmm. can Protestants learn from Catholics? What can mm -hmm. Protestants learn from Catholics? Yeah, I, I love getting to address this because there's so much. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, especially in the United States, where Protestantism is the largest demographic uh, in terms of religious views, we can really uh, see some weaknesses. Whenever you're the largest, you're the biggest target for criticism. It's easy to be complacent. Um, and sometimes people just assume that because it's what they've known. And so uh, there are a lot of weaknesses. I mean, one of the things would be just historical scholarship. Uh, if you're doing biblical scholarship, there's lots of great Protestant biblical scholars. In terms of church history, that's true for some. It's true more so historically, like, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Some of these Anglican uh, scholars are some of the greatest church history uh, scholars out there. And you think of others like Philip Schaff, a great Protestant historian. Mm -hmm. But I would say as a generalization, church history is not the uh, strength of especially evangelical Protestants today. So that's a huge area. Uh, if we can talk about how sometimes that can be used to put pressure on evangelicals. But also another area that I've thought a lot about is just, we, we could say aesthetics. So a theology of beauty, the great Roman Catholic theologian Hansers von Balthasar was, I think, the greatest theologian of beauty in all of church history. He thought so much mm -hmm. about beauty. And I think uh, this is an interest of mine in my apologetics, trying to use beauty in the way we do apologetics. But I think, you know, you can tell this from the way our Roman Catholic friends will do so well, generally speaking. This is not an absolute contrast 
at church architecture, at um, just the sense of transcendence that you will find there. That's an area of huge weakness, N not necessarily of all Protestants historically, but more so today. And uh, even just things like using the arts. You know, you think of all the great Roman Catholic writers like J.R. Tolkien, Blaise Pascal, mm -hmm. Malcolm Muggeridge, G.K. Chesterton. A lot of these people either became Catholic at a certain point or they were always Catholic. Um, the Protestants have C.S. Lewis. <laughs> well, you know, we, we don't have a long list. I mean, you, you could think of others, but so this that's an interesting thing to wonder about. Why, you know, why is that not as much of value? So, you know, there's so many issues, social issues, um, the theology of the body, a theology of sexuality, a theology of procreation. There's all kinds of areas where Protestants should learn, can learn from our, our friends in these traditions. Um, I've met some Christians in, in Roman Catholicism that I consider dear friends of mine. So uh, I hope, you know, that I hope we will never feel that in contending for truth, that somehow we are compromising in doing that by showing having love in our hearts and, and looking to learn. That, that's okay. good. I'd be curious. Uh, my audio is super low, so I'm going to try to yell at you because uh, <laughs> Michael told me my audio sounded bad because I'm using my camera audio on accident. So I just turned on this and I haven't got the audio level set. So uh, I'd be curious what you would think about the Protestant movement uh, as it being novel as or a new movement. You talked about Roman Catholics knowing church history really well. Well, one of the things that they'll claim because they know church history so well is the Protestant movement is new. Uh, how would you respond or engage with this idea that Protestantism is new and novel, uh, therefore, maybe not, maybe even saying therefore is, is too far, but should be rejected because of its novelty? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a great Protestant theologian named Francis Turretin. He's a Reformed theologian. He addressed this question very well in uh, his Institutes of Elenctic Theology, which are just over my shoulder, right, uh, right, oh, 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 right over there. Um <laughs> <laughs> I got to do it in reverse here. Um, but basically, I'll summarize his answer really briefly. He basically said, the, the effort of reform is new, but the thing being reformed is not new. Okay, and, and that's a simple point. But if you think about it, I think that's a valid defense. What the Protestants were saying is, we're not starting a new church. It's true that uh, the origins of Protestantism, that term and the specific thing is 16th century, so 1500 years into church history. But then again, there's lots of proto-Protestants, we can call them, people before that, and, uh, like the Waldensians, we can talk about some of these groups. Um, and uh, there's also lots of other reform movements within church history. So the, the effort is new, but the effort was nothing other than being a faithful Christian, having a pure church going back to apostolic teaching. And so in that sense, it's not new. It's as mm -hmm. old as you can get. All we seek to do is be faithful to what the apostle Paul would want, the apostle John would want, the apostle Peter would want, etc., etc. They're first century. So that's the effort. And so what we get into here where this claim is so often leveraged against Protestants with a lot of triumphalism as though Protestants have no historical basis, uh, and I think that's unfair. And what you get into is how you understand the nature of the church. And we'll probably talk about this, but there's a there's a claim of a kind of continuity throughout history in, in say, the Roman Catholic tradition, for example, that puts more focus upon the externals. And I just don't think that way of looking at historical continuity 
is compelling. The way that I put it in my book, I talk about the, the famous statement from Cardinal Newman, who said to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And basically what I say is we have to define that word deep. What does that mean? How do you measure historical depth? Uh, so often a particular way of thinking about that is just assumed in the argumentation. So um, I, I say, you know, you might say to be deep in history means what ultimately comes to be accepted by the greatest number of people over time. That's more of a diachronic way of charting out historical depth. So you might say, oh, look. And what I point out is if you use that definition, nobody's deep in history. There's all kinds of things that come to be across the time, the, the path of history. Like I'll give an example. Uh, St. Augustine's doctrine of the damnation of unbaptized babies. That view reigned supreme without any exceptions that I can locate between Augustine and the Reformation. The only qualification would be this idea of limbo, that the punishment is less severe. For babies that die unbaptized, they have less severe punishment, but nobody affirms the full salvation of unbaptized babies for over a thousand years. So we could say, look, is to be deep in history, to cease to affirm that uh, unbaptized babies can be saved, because most Roman Catholics today don't hold that view. And it's one example of many others where you can get into to, sh to show nobody follows just whatever comes about in church history consistently. And so what we want to do is be deep in history by going back to what's first and going back to the, basically the first century apostolic deposit. Okay. Now, I, I can imagine some uh, Roman Catholics responding, yeah, but, yeah, but the Mormons are claiming that we have all this history that got it wrong, and they're getting it back to the very beginning, of course, with a little new additional book and, and so on. But but you have all these splinter groups that are claiming they're going back to the beginning, but they're missing out on like whole swaths of of church history. So uh, what would you say to a Roman Catholic uh, who who says, makes such an argument, maybe says, you know, something uh, like citing examples, says something like, well, the Protestant view of justification is novel and the, uh, or more or less novel, uh, the Protestant view of sola scripture. And they, and they would go on down the line and claim that, like, look, our view was held by all these church fathers and you guys, you're saying you're going back to the first century, but you're skipping over a whole lot of history. I know this is going to just touch on one's view of church history and its authority, but just how would you respond uh, to a Roman Catholic who pushes back on you like that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I might say three things. I, I would say, first of all, a difference between the Protestant effort to reform the church on the basis of the first century teaching of the apostles is different from what Mormons claim, because Mormons are doing more than just seeking to go back to the New Testament. They have a whole new set of revelation. And so that would be the first kind of just major point of distinction that I would make. A second point that I would say is that, and this touches on a little bit of what you were asking about there, is uh, on major cardinal Protestant doctrines, we have much in church history to appeal to. So examples of this would be, let's take the two central pillars of the various Protestant traditions, sola scriptura and sola fide, that is by the scripture alone, that's our method, and then by faith alone, that's our understanding of something uh, very close to the gospel. 
And these are things we think are recovered in the Reformation. But what I've done is just look back and, you know, with sola fide, uh, I think you can find a very powerful articulation of that in John Chrysostom. And he is no uh, marginal figure. And if you read through his homilies on Romans, I mean, he just hits you with it over the head again and again. And I've done videos on that, documenting that. Um, St. Augustine of Hippo is obviously a hugely important figure. And I think Augustine argued as clearly as can possibly be expected or imagined that the scripture is the chief authority, the, the supreme authority for the church, and it alone is infallible. Even the ecumenical councils can err and be corrected by subsequent ecumenical councils, but only the scripture is infallible. So now, you know, I'm, I'm used to in these conversations, people will find ways to push back. They'll say, oh, but look at this other thing that they said and that kind of thing. And I, certainly we're not saying it's clean and tidy, but I'm just saying uh, it's not the case that we're skipping over 1500 years. Rather, our claim is that there are divergent views within church history. But I would say the central pillars of Protestant theology are certainly attested throughout church history. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'd say is that the, the Protestants were not the first. And so we actually join a tradition of dissent, much of which was savagely, brutally persecuted. Uh, Jan Hus and the Hussites, mm -hmm. or the Hussites, you can say. So this was a, a proto-Protestant. That just means basically someone who has some anticipations of the Protestant reformers. Um, I mean, there's a whole people, it's it's a whole world. You could explore how much there was to this. People could just look up the Bohemian Reformation online and just start digging in. It's basically like a, a proto-Protestant movement that has huge numbers of people involved 100 years before Luther. And Hus is one of my personal heroes. He was burned at the stake for opposing indulgences and papal overreach. So when, you know, Luther is a famous statement where he's saying we're all Hussites now, there's there's clear points of continuity between someone like that, between the Waldensians even earlier, between uh, John Wycliffe, and I've actually located about 12 or 15 other proto-Protestant groups, distinct groups, and they have a lot of continuity with Protestantism. Some of them officially joined Protestant churches later. So that's another way that we're not just totally new. We're actually, um, you know, we're in a tradition of protest. Okay. That's good. I, I'd be curious, could you maybe set up the argument for sola scriptura as it pertains to our epistemology as Protestants? I think one of the, the, I think this has to be a core thing that we have to set up before we dive into these other subjects of like Marian dogmas and the authority of the Pope, those kinds of things. Like where do these things come from? Because we, as Protestants, we, we want a scripture. We want a source material. We want a text that you can point to and say, hey, uh, we're going to do this because the Bible says so. Uh, but if the Bible doesn't say so, we're, we're, we're not going to do it. Um, uh, and, and we're not going to just go along with teachings that people are claiming to be true that we can't find sourced in Scripture and Scripture alone. Um, so and, and maybe you could even unpack even my nuance of that if you if you disagree with aspects of that. I know everyone wants to articulate Sola Scriptura in different ways. So could you maybe speak to the epistemological framework of Sola Scriptura versus the way that a Roman Catholic would kind of come to uh, their objective knowledge and how they would say this is how we know what is true for the Christian faith um, in contrast to those two views? Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So to define the Roman Catholic view, they put sacred scripture and sacred tradition as to be received with equal reverence and as together comprising the word of God. 
And then their magisterium, their teaching office, is in the role of interpreting both. And their magisterium, their teaching office, is capable of speaking infallibly. And that means it is understood to be preserved from error, and therefore it's irreformable. And uh, the, the Roman Catholic Pope can make uh, pronouncements, give a, a definition that is obligatory upon the consciences of Roman Catholic Christians, for example. So that's that view. Um, this is a really tricky area because sola scriptura is one of those terms where you can't actually just look it up in the dictionary. You know, it, it's a term that comes in slowly. So uh, what I would say is to try to be clear here, let's say what it isn't, and though it's often caricatured in this way, um, it's because it's an alternative to what I just defined as the Roman Catholic view. It's putting the scripture mm -hmm. at the top. And so what I, the way I like to define it shorthand is that scripture is the only infallible rule for the church. And uh, so the, to distinguish that from the, some of the caricatures, it does not mean that the scripture is the only source for all of our knowledge or something like this. Mm -hmm. We see a place for other forms of knowledge, including for tradition. Scripture is not a complete negation of church tradition, but it maintains that it is fallible. And so it's reformable in light of scripture. It's to be tested in light of scripture. We think of the Bereans, for example, testing the apostolic message uh, in Acts 17, and, and they're called noble for this. We think of Paul saying that in Galatians 1, even the angelic teaching and, and the apostolic teaching must be tested according to the deposit of the gospel given in the first century and so forth. So, um, so it doesn't mean that you have to have a chapter and verse for everything you believe. So that's one one thing. Now there is it does get tricky here because some Protestant traditions affirm a doctrine we call the sufficiency of Scripture, and that doctrine does say basically the Bible is sufficient to teach us a certain number of things. Different traditions will cash that out differently. In the Anglican Thirty Nine Articles, it's mainly about salvation. The Bible is sufficient to teach you everything you need to know to get saved. In the Reformed tradition, there's a stronger version, but even there it says that um, either it will be set down explicitly in scripture or it can be deduced from scripture by good and necessary consequence. And so this is already enough to ward off the common caricature that sola scriptura means you have to have a chapter and verse that explicitly lays out every doctrine you believe in. And that that is a caricature and that's not what it holds. Oh, there's probably other, other misunderstandings of it we could also uh, point to. Um, but but as an example, as a way of an example, as I'm, uh, you know, like we, we wouldn't claim that we don't believe in zebras because the Bible doesn't mention zebras, right? Mm -hmm. Like because it's not it's not the source of all authority and all knowledge, but the claim that it pertains to salvation and our life in God, that the scriptures are sufficient to articulate that. Um, so so you would say the sufficiency of scripture is different than sola scriptura which is like it is the ultimate authority that's two separate claims one is on sufficiency the other one is on authority that that if church tradition errors in certain ways the scripture do scriptures do not err um so that that's a helpful distinction actually uh, i think i even in my question probably conflated those two things no, it's all good. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think that's helpful. If I could just say one thing, too. I, I remembered, sure. you know, what, what you were mentioning there about authority. Another caricature we often hear is this idea that the scripture is the only authority. 
But that actually isn't true because as Protestants, we think that churches have authority. There's excommunication. You can be barred from that's a real act of authority. My ordination credentials have real authority over me. And uh, so what we just say is that those are fallible authorities. Scripture's the only infallible authority. That just might be another little point to clarify things that might be useful for folks watching. Okay. Uh, One of the things you mentioned earlier was that Augustine uh, noted that Scripture, exactly what you said, that Scripture is the ultimate authority and that councils can err and correct themselves. And so uh, I'd love for you, if you want to provide a little more detail on, on what Augustine said and or anyone else throughout church history, because I'd love for our viewers to be able to hear what does church history say about Sola Scriptura, because the Roman Catholic who's listening is saying, yeah, well, Sola Scriptura was invented in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. Uh, But if we're, but you've already cited Augustine, but any any citations from church history that just come to mind for you uh, that where Sola Scriptura is affirmed? Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is one. Uh, let me let me anticipate too how a Roman Catholic viewer, because I, I try to have these discussions again, like we said at the beginning, where we're advocating for the truth, we're contending for the truth, but we're doing so with kind of a human touch and also with carefulness to never caricature them and to be careful in how I word things. So I'm I've done this enough now because I've really gotten into these conversations and I get a lot of critique videos and so forth. To, to know how some people will respond. And what they mm-hmm. will say is if I start, and I'll, in a moment I'll give you a number of examples, but before I do that, if I start doing that, they're gonna say, oh, so you're claiming all these people were Protestants? And, and that misunderstands. We're, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making a, a grand claim here. There actually isn't total clarity, like there's just two options and everyone is on one side or the other. Church history is really messy. And there's plenty of people like St. Augustine, who I think does affirm the essential content of Sola Scriptura, but also differs from Protestants on many points about Scripture. He affirms the Deuterocanon, what we call sometimes the Apocrypha, for example. He also has a very high view of tradition and so forth. So I'm just wanting to clarify for our Roman Catholic viewers, uh, perhaps, that uh, don't mishear this. Don't don't hear these words in in a Roman Catholic paradigm where there's this tighter sense of ecclesial continuity from today to the past. What we're 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 leaving room for wiggle room and differences as well. Okay, but what I would say is uh, in 1588, uh, one of I think he was Anglican. Uh, a great Protestant named William Whittaker wrote a defense of Sola Scriptura, and he has a section where he goes through, I think it's 22, 20 or 22, maybe 25 examples of church fathers who attested to the supreme stature of Scripture. They didn't always cash it out with all the nuances that you'll find in like a Protestant confession, though sometimes it's amazingly similar. Um, Irenaeus is an earlier Christian who... uh, is a pretty powerful testimony you know when it comes to what we call the perspicuity of scripture which means the clarity of scripture which also is a very nuanced idea i mean irenaeus when when the heretics will charge the scripture with obscurity his response to that and the way he defends the clarity of scripture to teach us the gospel is just amazing but to address augustine augustine wrote on scripture and tradition more than all the other church fathers combined And he is a massive authority and and just a a huge titanic theologian. So he's appropriate to focus on. And he said so much about this in his treatment of uh, baptism, writing against the Donatists. 
is his clearest statement where he talks about what he calls plenary councils formed for the whole Christian world. And this is the highest on the hierarchy of authority in the church, from bishops to local councils to these full councils, or we would call them today, though he didn't have all these technical categories, an ecumenical council. And he, and he says they can err and be corrected by a subsequent ecumenical council. And he explicitly distinguishes that from Holy Scripture, which he says is uh, settled in its own limits. So because it cannot err. Um, and there's so many other passages where more briefly, he'll just basically say all the post-apostolic productions of the church can err. They're not infallible, but the scripture is infallible. And I've done videos on this. That'll be in my book as well. People can check that out. People don't like to hear that. They want to claim Augustine as their own. The truth is the church fathers are not neat. They're not neat and tidy for any of us. They don't fit neatly for Protestants or for Roman Catholics. They say things that will make us all uncomfortable at times. But on this point, Augustine's a clear witness, I think just powerfully so. And the last thing I'll mention is even in the medieval era, you find lots of discussion. There are people who are kind of not only like Jan Hus, the proto-Protestants, but even people within the Roman Catholic Church who have a very high view of scripture and they 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 would be very close to what you'll find like in a in an Anglican context, maybe where you call it what's called prima scriptura, where scripture's at the top of the pyramid, but it's a little little has a little more room for tradition than what you might find in like a reformed context. There's lots of people like that. Wessel Gansford is a name that comes to my mind if people want to Google him and look into that. It, it, they may not, you know, they may not want to hear it, but the fact is a lot of Christians at all times throughout church history have recognized the Holy Scripture is unique. This is the words of God. This is God breathed. This is this has a unique stature, and there's nothing that happens in the church that rises to its to that level of importance and authority. So that's good. Let's let's uh, again try to play the role of the Roman Catholic who is hearing you explain that Scripture has this unique authority. It's different than church history, and yet we have two different collections of books on what actually the canon is. Um, the Protestants have a list of books. The, the Catholics have another list of books, what seem to add the Apocrypha. Um, those kinds of uh, organizations of what is Scripture, they would say, how did you come to a different list of books than us? Well, they would say the Scripture doesn't list what Scriptures are Scripture. It was tradition that did that. Like the church recognized that these were the words of God. Uh, how would we engage with uh, a Catholic that says, hey, um, these apocryphal books, these are holy scripture. Um, and what authority does the Protestant have to say that it's not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a this is a really um, tough issue and a good question. And I've thought about it a great deal. And I condensed my answer to this into a little soundbite in a debate I had with Trent Horn in uh, March of this year. Uh, people could check that out. It basically, they could go to my first rebuttal. And uh, I think like about a minute into there, I give about a two minute answer to this if they're interested in that. That's where my answer would be more polished <laughs> there. And I'll try to remember some of the things. But the basic point is Protestants have historically affirmed that the church is necessary unto the word of God. There will be no scripture without the church. It, it wouldn't exist. And they affirmed that for several reasons. One is persecution. Uh, protecting the scripture during persecution. Another is disseminating, translating, copying, etc. And another is canonization. Uh, as Protestants, we believe that the church must discern the word of God. 
but we see that relationship like John the Baptist discerning Jesus. We are not at, at equal authority with the scripture as the church. We do not need to be infallible to recognize and discern the infallible scriptures. We do not need an infallible capacity ourselves as the people of God collectively to make that recognition. And to press that point, I would appeal not only to the fact that that philosophically does not seem necessary. If you if you say it is, then you get in an infinite regress because now you need to be infallible in order to interpret the infallible teachings of the Pope and the, in, and the infallible portions of ecumenical councils. And actually that comes up because you'll find Roman Catholics who disagree about which portions of uh, an ecumenical council are infallible and which are not. It's a huge thing in my debates about the veneration of icons. Or you'll find Roman Catholics who disagree. I mean, ask Roman Catholics, what is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on the death penalty? You will get different interpretations of that. And so, you know, the same argument could be put against them that, well, if you need to be infallible to discern that which is infallible, then now you need, you, you get into an infinite regress. But the other quick appeal I would make is just to look at history. The people of God did not have an infallible teaching office throughout what we call the Old Testament. They received the Pentateuch from Moses and recognized this is the infallible word of God, not because there was a council or an edict that told them so. Jesus held the Jews of his day to the authority of the Hebrew scriptures, but and he referenced the law and the prophets. But they did not have an infallible uh, uh, edict that told them that. In fact, there were some outlier groups that had different views. Um, the New, New Testament church did not decide the canon in an infallible. I mean, this is the greatest irony. This is often leveraged against us. Like we're wrong to think that the church doesn't need to be infallible to know the scripture. But for the vast majority of her history, the Roman Catholic Church didn't have any infallible canon list either. And you can find in the decades leading up to Luther, heavy hitting Roman Catholic cardinals who disagree about how to understand what we call the deuterocanonical books and whether they're in the canon or not, or whether it's first tier canon or second tier canon. So there's disagreements for 1500 years. And so the, the early councils that established even the New Testament were fallible local councils. And so if, if we are impressed that you know, we have no basis for our canon because it wasn't infallible, then we could say, because we don't have an infallible mechanism to tell us which books are in the canon, I think we can just turn that around right back at our friends and say, how did the Jewish people do it? How did the church fathers do it? How did the medieval doctors do it? And and that brings us back to the to my position, which is that like John the Baptist knowing Jesus, I don't need to be at the level of Jesus to know that that's the Messiah. And the church doesn't need to be infallible to know these are the books that are the scripture. We have we test them according to certain criteria, like apostolicity and so forth. So anyway, you can tell I get into this and I can go on. Yeah. So you can interrupt I love me. It. Okay. Well, I think probably Josh, you were gonna ask the same question as me, maybe. Um, so you obviously landed on the side of Protestantism. So you reject the Deuterocanonical books, the Apocrypha, as top tier holy scripture. I'm confident you would say they're valuable for reading and uh and so on but but tell us why you you would reject the apocrypha 
Okay, the essential reason is I think there are good reasons to trust that the earliest tradition in the church is that the deuterocanonical books, which then make for a longer Old Testament, um, are looked to by the early church as authoritative in a to a degree and as certainly edifying, but as subordinate to the proto-canonical books, you could say. It's not universal. Okay, we, we, I've already mentioned Augustine's view, but in the West, you see Jerome and one or two others and, uh, who take this view. They think that only what we call the 39 books uh, of the Old Testament that we recognize, that only these books are first-tier scripture. Uh, and then in the East, there's an early council, the Synod of Laodicea, that basically almost all the Eastern fathers follow. And what that council affirms is there's two tiers of canon. So you've got first tier and second tier, and the deuterocanonical are in the second tier. They're useful, they're edifying, and they can be cited as scripture. That's what throws a lot of people off. They'll hear these quotes. You know, some uh, church father will, will say, as the scripture says, and then it'll quote Tobit or something like this. And so that throws people off. But then you look at the same father who actually gives you a list of books. And he says, these are the books you're actually going to base your doctrine on. And then they'll list the shorter canon. And this is the common tradition in the East where they, they clump like the minor prophets together as one book and a few other things like this. So it amounts to 22 books. And that's understood to be uh, based upon the 22-letter Hebrew alphabet. And that's the canon you see in the East. Uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius. Gregory of Nazianzus, all the way up to John of Damascus, several others. There's minor variations. So they include the book of Baruch in as enfolded into Jeremiah. There's a few other smaller points like that. Some of them, like Athanasius, will reject the book of Esther. So I'm not trying to say it's neat and tidy. I'm not trying to say they're exactly like Protestants. Um, but the, the, what I would say is there are really good reasons based upon that trajectory in the East, as well as the testimony of Jerome, who is the greatest biblical exegete and biblical scholar in the early church that to, to suppose that there's always been this awareness of these deuterocanonical books aren't the same. How Whatever we do with them, however much we use them and praise them, there's a distinction that is made. And so for most of church history, there was a kind of distinction where both, even those who accept both will recognize they're kind of on different levels. And then at the Council of Trent, that distinction is removed. At the Council of Florence as well, but there isn't an anathema there, and there's still debate happening. At the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the distinction between first-tier and second-tier canon is removed. And so uh, it's very messy, And but I, but I would say you have really good reasons to suppose that it's that shorter canon. This is the canon that, that is recognized by the Jewish people. You can see that in Josephus, for example, and I think that's the canon that's reflected in Jesus's language of the law and the prophets and the writings. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, in a way, it's a more conservative view, because what you're saying is, let's base our doctrine on the books that all Christians agree are scripture. Um, but I would say as a, an add-on to that, Protestant Christians need to read the deuterocanonical books more, because they're not, we're not saying they're bad to read. And I would say we, you know, in the spirit of where we can learn, we have overreacted. We've gone even further than the reformers in basically just, we don't engage them hardly at all many times. And so we can learn a lot from those books. The, the historic position shouldn't be that they're bad or something like that. But nonetheless, we, we see them in a subordinate position. 
It's good. I'm glad that you brought up the Council of Trent because I'm super Protestant and I like talking about justification. So uh, after we talk about the Bible and authority and all that good stuff, we want to talk about justification. So I, I'm curious. Uh, this is a sticking point uh, between Protestants and Catholics, and probably the sticking point. You know, the the authority of Scripture versus the Church, and you know, trying to figure out where where authority lies or the central core of authority, I should say, lies is a big question. But right after that, or maybe even before that, depending on how you want to argue from it, is this doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Can you maybe explain what the Roman Catholic view of justification is, and then maybe even help us understand, is that the same as the kind of Galatian heresy that we see like in in Galatians 1, where Paul says, if you believe another gospel, that you're anathema or damned for destruction. Can you maybe... Uh, contrast those positions. I'm trying not to get you in trouble here, uh, but but are they the same thing? Okay, boy, th- th- this is a oh, whew, it's a really consequential question. It's also a really complicated question. So I go into this. Help me, Lord. Um, but it, what I'll try to do is be be true to my study on this. I've done a video on this for people if they want to watch an hour long answer to this question. To be brief, I would say that some Protestants, first of all, are insufficiently generous to our Roman Catholic friends on this topic. And I, so to answer the first question, to just try to be, try to be transparent here, I don't take the view that all Roman Catholics are under the anathema of Galatians 1, uh, or that they are committing the same error as the Judaizers were in the first century. I I don't think that's true. Um, One of the reasons for that, that I go into in my video on this is that the Roman Catholic Church distinguishes between initial justification and final justification. And for initial justification, they do teach that it is purely by faith. You don't have to do any good works to, to come into a state of grace and become a child of God. You just repent and believe the gospel and you, you get baptized. Now you're in. Now, that is not to say, and that, I'm not aware that the Judaizers position was like that. And at a practical level, I have to say, I see Christians in the Roman Catholic ranks that I cannot, in my heart, I feel I'd be sinning if I rejected them and said they cannot be saved because I see the Holy Spirit in them. And when I see that, I feel an obligation to them. And I think that's where the judgment of charity should incline. And I'm just constrained toward that. And that's a view similar to what you'd find in someone like J.I. Packer. So some people think I'm compromising there. I, I don't think I am. And I would say that's a historic Protestant view held by many. And in my book, I actually document a lot of the reformers and and others held that view. What I would then say, though, is the fact that it may not be the same thing as the Galatian heresy doesn't mean our differences are unimportant, you know, as as though, oh, it's, it's no big deal, you know. So what I would say is we have made progress on this area, it seems to me, some progress, but not total progress through ecumenical dialogue. Uh, I take a, a balanced view on ecumenical dialogue. I try to be a realist about it, but I try not to be a cynic about it. You know, so I recognize sometimes it just gets too bland and compromises too much. But also, we can make progress through talking to each other. And I think there's been some progress here. I also think we agree on a lot. But where I see the sticking point is that this question, okay, you become a Christian, you get baptized. Now what? What happens when you commit a mortal sin? and you fall out of a state of grace, according to Roman Catholic theology, and you have to confess to a priest to get back into a state of grace. And how do you define mortal sin? And how does it sort of work out in real time? And and how does purgatory come in? And how do indulgences come in? 
And, you know, so I've some serious concerns in this area where I think Roman Catholic theology leaves people in a state of anxiety that the gospel would want to cast off from our heart and our conscience. So, um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not downplaying this. I'm not minimizing it. Um, I'm trying to be careful. What I would say theologically, the sticking point is, is on the, what we call the formal cause of justification. So Aristotle spoke of these four different kinds of causes, a final cause, an instrumental cause, and so forth. The formal cause is like, basically, we could say that which actually constitutes our righteousness before God. And Roman Catholics see this as infused, whereas we see it as imputed. And the concern is that, I, I can put it like this, I don't want to stand before God on Judgment Day with an infused righteousness. I need the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus to cover me. And that's just my sincere uh, cry of the heart uh, for where our differences incline there. So that's a serious matter. That, that, that'd be where I'd say the ecumenical progress, we need to kind of hone in on that issue. Yeah. So uh, some, some people, I think, would uh, it would benefit to explain the difference between imputed and infused righteousness. Could you dive into that a little bit more? Okay, so imputed righteousness will be um, that which is sort of credited to us, to use Paul's term in Romans 4. So we're thinking in legal categories here, and basically thinking um, God credits to the believer the righteous status of Jesus himself, so that our legal standing before God is uh, on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. Infused righteousness will be that which the Holy Spirit works in us, okay? So I don't have a perfect righteous, righteousness covering me. God's at work. God is giving me grace. But I'm uh, actually, this, I'm actually growing in righteousness, and that right. is the, the basis of my legal standing before God. And so that's a brief. So it, it's as, kind of like a blending of, uh, go ahead, Josh. I was going to say, as Protestants, we don't entirely reject the idea that there is um, a work of the Spirit in moving us towards righteousness, because like Martin Luther has his distinctions of quorum mundo and quorum deo, I am righteous before God, my righteousness before the world. I will always be secured, righteous before God. I have faith in Jesus. My righteousness is secured, but I have this righteousness before the world, my sanctification. God is transforming me, but my transformation and my active participation in Christ's righteousness here on the earth does not bring into jeopardy my secured righteousness before God. So even the way that we talk about these terms, it seems as if, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe I'll ask it in a question form, would a Roman Catholic um, not find that there are two separate forms of righteousness, but only one righteousness, which is I am being transformed. Is righteousness, uh, sanctification, justification kind of blended in the Roman Catholic view, maybe is, is how I'll ask it. Yeah, this is where maybe we can come together somewhat with our Roman Catholic friends in recognizing that a lot of these points where we're going to be differing here are going to be terminology because they will say that they use, here's what's so tricky and why I think sometimes Protestants can learn to be more open-hearted and generous in understanding. They simply use the term uh, justification for the full process. Um, of being actually made righteous. So, so that's kind of similar to how we will talk about justification and sanctification together. Yeah. 
So, so there's a lot of overlap, just like they don't understand us sometimes when they think, oh, you guys believe in justification by faith alone. I, I made a response video to someone recently, and I was just dismayed at how much that was misunderstood as though not only easy believism, so you don't have to change and grow, which of course, as Protestants, we certainly think if you're a true Christian, you have to take up your cross and follow Christ. That will involve a process of sanctification. We just think that's the outflow of what yeah. we call justification. So we actually, our positions are actually more similar than sometimes is seen, but not only was there a misunderstanding about that, but this person didn't even understand that people are perfected before they go to heaven. And so they were thinking, oh, well, salvation by faith alone. So just these sinful people are up in heaven. And so I was trying to clarify that, but so there's so many misunderstandings, but that the reality is we, there is some common agreement. We both agree that the initial act of coming into a state of grace is purely on terms of grace. We both agree that it's all of grace, ultimately. It's all of God's grace. People don't realize that sometimes. And we both agree that you have to change. You actually can't just say, oh, well, I believe in Jesus in my mind, but I'm not repenting in my heart and life. We, we yeah. both agree with that. A lot of the difference is terminological. A lot of the difference has to do with mortal sins and how you stay in a state of grace. And then the real thing, I think, is the formal cause of justification. That's a real point of difference, too. Yeah. Okay. So you can correct my understanding of Roman Catholicism here if I'm wrong, but, uh, but I'll just put it out there. Okay. So it seems to me uh, that in the Council, of, uh, the Council of Trent that anathemas were placed on Protestants uh, who believed in Protestant doctrines, such as justification by faith, uh, by grace through faith, and so on. Uh, so there are anathemas pronounced uh, at the Council of Trent, but then you get to Vatican II, and they don't formally withdraw the anathemas, but they seem to elevate Protestants from damned heretics to, a, I think the word was ecclesial communities, something like that. And, uh, and so not quite to the level of like even Eastern Orthodox and, but, but we're, we're like closer, <laughs> but then they seem to open it up, not just to Protestants, but to, I don't know, in some ways it, it seems like everybody, I, I, I don't know. So talk to me about uh, the reason this is important to me. So first of all, fact check me, correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, but second of all, the reason it's important is if, if a later council is, is, changing things, well, that says something about the authority of church tradition. So could you speak into all that? Yeah. Um, two, two things I could say, and, and your comments there kind of ref reflect my own thoughts on, on this in terms of some of my concerns, is that I, I would say that it is really hard to deny that there have been changes uh, that within the Roman Catholic Church on this whole question of how do you classify people outside the Roman Catholic Church. So, you know, you brought up how yeah, ecclesial communities, um, there's at Vatican II the idea that Jews and Muslims can participate in the plan of salvation, Protestants can certainly be saved, so forth. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say there is a, a concern of inconsistency in terms of that contemporary view. I mean, I'm glad it's better that, that uh, there's an opening up a little bit, I guess, but there's an inc a concern of inconsistency because if you go back to the medieval era, I would say it's in infallible teaching, like uh, things that would classify as an ex-cathedra statement from a pope that 
all outside the Roman Catholic Church are damned. Uh, an example of that would be at the Council of Florence, where I found a statement from Pope Eugene that is as clear as you could possibly imagine. He just goes through and, and nails it down. And I find I, I do get frustrated when people just want to acknowledge and just call a spade a spade because he goes through and he says, it doesn't matter if you're a martyr, it doesn't matter if you're baptized, you must become Catholic or you will go to the fires of hell with Satan. Um, you know, and, and then it feels disingenuous when people come after and say, oh, what it really meant is this or that. And then there's other other examples I've given. So, so my first comment is just, yeah, that I think it's a falsification of Roman Catholic claims of ecclesial infallibility, the way they've moved the goalposts. And that used to be no salvation outside the church in one sense. And now it's, well, no salvation outside the church in this much broader sense and the way they define that now. And the other thing I'd say is, as much as I dearly love many Roman Catholic friends and learn much from the Roman Catholic tradition, the fact that there have been so many anathemas, people could just Google and they'll find lists of all the anathemas the Roman Catholic Church has given throughout history. Those are a reason why we're Protestant. So, you know, it's not wrong for us to stand up and defend ourselves against that level of criticism. They, The Roman Catholic Church does claim to be the one true church. And they do restrict valid Eucharists, for example, to their church. And then if they make a few exceptions for other churches that may have valid apostolic succession, like maybe the Eastern Orthodox, but not the Anglicans, certainly not my church. So the way I can put it is, you know, it, it's not wrong for me to defend Protestant theology when the Roman Catholic Church claims that my church isn't even a real church. It's just an ecclesial community and we don't have a valid Eucharist. So long as that exclusivistic theology remains, I'm going to keep advocating for mm -hmm. what I believe is the truth and what the apostles actually taught. Amen. Okay. I'd like to ask a question that follows up on the justification question as it relates to Galatians. Um, you know, it seems as if, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're saying that the Roman Catholic position is not one that says you come into justification uh, by works, um, uh, you actually come in by grace, but you stay in by works, or like if you fall at that, that process, there's some kind of activity that is required on behalf of the uh, the once justified uh, to maintain that grace. What if, um, like, if I'm going to quote Galatians um, three, for example, you know, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you is before Christ's eyes that you were publicly. Uh, uh, before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me only ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or hearing in faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? You're now being perfected by the flesh. So he's even like charging the Galatians. Like you started this work of justification. You received the spirit um, by grace through faith. Like you received this gift from God. Uh, he even you know talks about working mighty miracles in three five by works of the law or by hearing in faith. And it's a rhetorical question saying you clearly have received the spirit and gifts of the spirit by faith and by turning now to works to justify you, even as a progressive justification. Um, it seems as if, like he says in Galatians 5, um, that if you receive circumcision, you know, you are severed from Christ. I mean, the language there is extreme. And I'm not asking you to like, again, anathematize Roman Catholics as much as I am saying, how how does this seem all that different of progressive justification where it seems as if they're saying, hey, you've come in, but you need to stay in through circumcision. You need to stay in through you know, ceremonial feasts, new moons, those kinds of things. It seems as if 
a lot of what the apostles are writing against is that kind of articulation. Okay, you're justified, but to be part of the covenant people, to be part of the covenant community, circumcision is necessary to take the Lord's Supper. Like that's a that's that's how I kind of read Galatians. So I'd, I'd be curious if you could clean that up for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. This gets tricky. Um, I probably need to think about this question more to have a great answer. I mean, off the top of my head, I think what Paul when Paul says that in that passage you cited there that you've begun in the spirit, but now you're going to the to the flesh. Um, so I'm not sure that's the same thing as a church teaching that you know notionally a person comes in by grace alone, but then has to do good works, part of that will become, well, what kind of works? Because actually, again, and here's where people misunderstand the Protestant position, I think we would all agree with James that you do have to do good works. And that sure. if there's no progress, if there's no, like, you know, if someone, uh, and this also, this, this is the other half of the question is historical context, the particular errors of the Judaizers in requiring these Jewish ceremonial badges like circumcision i guess i want to be careful in thinking through wait a second does that is that going to apply to other kinds of good works in other contexts what about when a protestant church requires people to be regular attending and to be i don't know let's just let's just, let's just say that there's a protestant church that says you have to do quiet times in order to take the Lord's Supper at our church. Now, we don't have a rule like that. I'm not saying that's a good thing to do. But is that the same as the Galatian heresy now? You see, it's it's tricky in terms of what kinds of works are we talking about and what's the nature of the transition there. I just, I, I, I get, I want to be careful here because the, the Judaizers were a particular um, historical instantiation of this works righteousness that was that had its own uniqueness. I mean, a lot of the Judaizers were savagely persecuting Paul all throughout the book of Acts. In those final eight chapters, I mean, it's just brutal what they're doing to him. So there's this kind of context to the kinds of works and the kinds of errors and the kinds of leaders of this movement that I want to be careful to then extend that out and apply that to other groups. Um, I don't know. I probably need to think about that question more to have to say yeah. anything more about that off the that's, top of my head. That's good. Thank that's you. Good. Okay, um, Gavin, we're getting pretty close to time for uh, to the one hour mark here, and it's usually where we try to land. But I do want to ask you this, and it's just a simple kind of top three here. If you had to whittle down your all your reasons for why you're Protestant and not Catholic to three, what would your top three reasons be for choosing Protestantism? Okay, I, w- I would say. Um, I can I can give the two major ones and then a kind of pres- pastoral outflow from those. The, so the first one would be exclusivity. Ooh, these are all begin with a vowel. So this is alliteration. You know, after so many years preaching, you know, that makes you so excited <laughs> when you discover this, right? So <laughs> exclusivity, accretions, and anxiety. Okay, now let me explain those. So exclusivity is they claim to be the one true church. And that just makes our disagreements very different from our disagreements with a Methodist because I'm a Baptist or, or I'm not trying to pick on Methodists, but just any other Protestant denomination because the Protestant denominations, generally speaking, except for a few like fundamentalist groups, don't say we're the one true church. And so that exclusivity is a real sticking point. 
And uh, it's just actually, it goes down to the roots because it, it actually flavors all the nature of our other disagreements because the implication of these disagreements isn't like it is between me and a Lutheran. Uh, generally speaking, we'll say we disagree, but you're still a church. You still have valid sacraments. You still, uh, you have the Holy Spirit and we call you a full church. We're part of the church. We just disagree. And of course, this is a different conversation we're having with our Roman Catholic friends. So that's one thing. Accretions is a word that means a slow buildup. And basically, I would say things like the papacy, things like the Marian dogmas, things like indulgences, things like purgatory. A lot of the doctrine of Roman Catholic theology, I believe, is a slow buildup throughout church history. It's not like it just came in at one moment. It's kind of a slow growth, gradual, bit by bit by bit. Each particular change isn't radical in and of itself, but it slowly builds up. But the net effect of it all is we've drifted from what Christianity was intended to be. I think indulgences are bad. You know, I, I just don't think that's at all in any way what God would want us to do. But at the Council of Trent, one of those anathemas is if you deny the church has the power to grant indulgences and that they are effective, you are under anathema. So that's just one of those issues where it's like, okay, well, what can I do with that if my conscience goes against this? So these accretions, and my reference to my conscience there leads to the third thing, and that's anxiety. I just, in my work in this area, I've just found that these exclusivistic claims put such a vice grip on people's consciences. And I know so many people who are really deep in anxiety, worried, you know, am I in the one true church and, or not? And I really think that does come down to a failure to understand the gospel. And it is a distraction from the gospel because I believe the gospel would call us to put our full trust in Jesus Christ himself in such a way, because they'll, they'll agree with that in wording, but in such a way that we're, our salvation, we're not left in a state of anxiety about whether we picked the right institution to join. Rather, what makes us a Christian is, have we sincerely put our trust in Christ and are we following him? And so that concern of anxiety is how it plays out at a pastoral level. And that's why we value not yoking people's consciences too much. And also that's why we value assurance of salvation, which is another kind of fault line issue where we have a different approach to that. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Uh, well, Gavin, thank you so much for coming on to the program today. Uh, sorry for everyone who's watching the live stream and we weren't on right at four. Uh, a few technical uh, uh, hiccups from coming back from Anaheim. A lot of great content that we have for you. Uh, Gavin, where do people find your content, your books? What's the best place to find your YouTube channel and all the different projects that you're working on? Yeah, thanks so much. It's so fun to talk with you guys. I, by the way, before I... I, we sign off. I love the work you do. I love the focus on spiritual gifts. I'm a continuationist too. I, I, it's in, but I'm not usually in continuationist context. So it's uh, for people watching, that means believing in all the spiritual gifts. So when you mentioned Carol Wimber, I, I've always wanted to meet her because I read her book, The Way It Was, her biography mm. of John Wimber when I was mm. a, a senior in high school. I loved it. So anyway, it's encouraging to talk with you guys. People can find out about me in most forms of social media. The two big ones would be my website, GavinOrtland.com, or my YouTube channel, which is called Truth Unites. Hmm. Fantastic. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a pleasure. Guys, if you're out there and you're watching and you want to be updated when we come out with content just like that, hit the subscribe button, hit the like, uh, and then share this video around if it blessed you and yeah, you want to encourage some Protestants to keep protesting. Uh, Gavin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And we will see you guys next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Blessings, and we will see you next time.
Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio. <laughs> 